The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. Flower festivities. A look at the 10th and 11th months in the Egyptian civil and religious year. This was a particularly interesting time of the year, as the Egyptians put a lot of effort into one mega, serious, grand festival. Today, we get to look at the Egyptians' Day of the Dead, and along the way, we meet up with a most important god, Harpy, the Lord of the Nile. Today's episode is brought to you by Marco Luce, who is way overdue for his shout-out. Marco, thank you for supporting the show. May Harpy ensure that your crops and gardens grow fruitful and give you bounties in reflection of your generosity. To everyone who has made a donation but feels that I might have missed their acknowledgement, please let me know and I will correct the oversight as soon as I can. As always, enjoy the show. Month number 10. Coming up towards the finish line, aren't we? The Egyptians felt so too. As the 10th month dawned around May, the Egyptians were looking to the past and to the future. The future because the Nile flood was just a few months away. The past because it was time to honour the memory of their ancestors. Month number 10 was called pa in inet or the one in the valley. It was the second month in the season of Shemu, or harvest. All across Egypt, farmers were collecting the crops and bringing them into storage at the granaries. Accountants were busy with their tallies, tax assessors were taking the state's cut of the growth, and temples were looking forward to great celebrations for another successful harvest. It was a good time of year, and as the weather began to warm into summer, the Egyptians were feeling good. So, Pa and Inet, the one in the valley, was a happy month all round. At the first new moon of this month, Egyptians took their agricultural products, big and small, and gathered them together. With such a bounty before them, they were looking forward to a time of plenty. Naturally, they felt the need to give thanks. The Egyptian Thanksgiving took the form of a great festival to honour the dead ancestors. In a way, it was part Day of the Dead and part Qingming, great celebrations of the Mexica and Chinese traditions respectively. These festivals, of which the Egyptians are just one example, involve remembrance and honour to the dead, and offerings to their immortal health. The ancient Egyptian affair is remarkably similar to these modern festivals in many respects. The Egyptians now embarked on a grand festival called Heb Nefer En Inet, a.k.a. the Beautiful Festival of the Valley. The Beautiful Festival of the Valley is a celebration primarily recorded at ancient Thebes. It seems to have been a Theban phenomenon, and most of our records come from there. 
but it's entirely possible that it took place throughout Egypt, and our evidence just doesn't survive. The Feast of the Valley appears in royal inscriptions, paintings on the walls of tomb chapels, and also in temples. It is pretty well attested, and there is a lot we can talk about. Today, we'll stick to the essentials. The beautiful Festival of the Valley began in the Temple of Karnak, at the home of Amun. There, in hidden sanctuaries, priests burned incense and carefully placed the statue of the god onto a large, portable shrine. This shrine, which took the form of a boat, or bark, was carefully lifted onto the shoulders of low-ranking priests, who brought it out of the inner sanctum in a procession. Ahead of them, the chief priests, like the high priest of Amun and the god's wife of Amun, usually a queen, led the procession out of Karnak itself. They headed for the River Nile, ready to make a crossing. Down to the jetties, down to the barge. The statue of Amun was heading west. Crossing the River Nile, the procession of Amun disembarked and made its way up the embankment. They were at the beginning of a long day of walking and worshipping. You see, over the next few hours, this procession would be required to visit a great many temples. Temples dedicated to kings. Temples called Houses of Eternity. I've mentioned that the Feast of the Valley was dedicated to the dead. Well, the first part of the feast was a ritual where the god Amun visited the mortuary temples of the deceased kings. These temples, some of them centuries old, were maintained in honour of great rulers. The greater the king, the more likely their cult would endure. Offerings would be made to the spirit or ka of the ruler, remembrance would be paid to their magnificent deeds, and gifts would be given for the happiness of the god. Many kings had built mortuary temples in Thebes. In the 18th dynasty, the most notable names were those who had ruled long, ruled well, and accomplished great feats. Names like Amunhotep II, Tutmose III, Amunhotep I, and the legendary Montuhotep II, founder of the Middle Kingdom and one of the greatest kings ever. Naturally, there were other names, both minor kings like Tutmose IV and the disgraced ones like Hatshepsut. Basically, any king worth their salt built a mortuary temple at Thebes. Amun visited all of these. As you can imagine, the procession of Amun started out small in earlier centuries. But as kings came and went, and new mortuary temples cropped up, the ritual slowly got longer and longer and longer. By the days of Ramesses the Great, around 1250 BCE, the procession could actually take multiple days to visit every mortuary temple. Ramesses actually claims, or boasts, that the procession had to stay at his temple overnight, so Amun spent a whole night in the house of his favourite son. You can imagine how that particular pharaoh was pleased with his work. Anyway, the priests and Amun made their way into the hills west of Thebes. Visiting one mortuary temple and then another, they made offerings to the ka or spirit of each king. They honoured his name that it might live forever. Among the offerings, the priests gave bread, beer, meat and vegetables, good sustenance for the soul of the dead. They also gave a hectare of flowers. The ancient Egyptians loved flowers. They loved them for their beauty and scent, but they also loved them for their symbolism. 
Flowers were connected intimately with concepts of birth, rebirth, and renewal. Which makes sense, right? Plant a flower seed and it will grow. Cut the head off and a new one will grow where it falls. Pick a flower and you can make all sorts of artistic and sensual objects with it. The Egyptians used flowers in worship in different ways. Sometimes they simply gave huge quantities to the temples, bouquets for adornment and to fill the air with sweet scents. Other times they gave them as a sort of physical prayer. At a feast like the beautiful festival of the valley, Egyptians of all classes, royal, priestly, elite and common, gave bouquets of flowers shaped in the form of anks. The ank, or life, was made out of flowers like lotuses, daisies, lavender, bay leaves, and other rich-smelling plants. These ank symbols were placed before altars and at the doors of tombs. They were offerings of sweetness, or sedjem, to the dead. Funnily enough, these bouquets in the shape of anks, or life, were also a type of pun. You see, the word ank means life, but it can also mean, wait for it, bouquet, which is too perfect to be a coincidence. Life, bouquet. Ank could mean either. So a bouquet of flowers in the shape of an ank was basically a rebus, a word given life in the shape of an object. Once again, the Egyptians showed their eternal love of wordplay and good old-fashioned puns. Amen. So, the beautiful festival of the valley started with a procession from Karnak to the western valleys. It then involved a series of offerings as the priests and statue of Amun visited every single mortuary temple built on the west bank of Thebes. King after king received offerings of food and flowers, as the worshippers gave praise and sustenance to the great names of dead rulers. They then proceeded towards their final destination. The ultimate point of the feast of the valley was, well, a valley. The procession went further and further west, until it arrived at the valley which, today, we call Deir el-Bahari. Deir el-Bahari was the location of a temple built by that king I mentioned earlier. Montuhotep II, king of Thebes and reunifier of Egypt, was one of the great names in royal history. It was Montuhotep, arguably, who had brought the city of Thebes to its first prominence. First by unifying the country at the end of the first intermediate period, and then by building his mortuary temple at Deir el-Bahari. Through these deeds, which we looked at way back in episode 28, Montuhotep put Thebes on the map, so to speak. Now, more than 1500 years later, Egyptians upheld that memory and honoured the great king at the culmination of their festival. The priests of Amun, carrying their sacred bark, made their way into the valley of Deir al-Bahri. Before them, three enormous mortuary temples stood proud. To the left, the temple of Montuhotep II. In the centre, a smaller monument of Tutmos III. To the right, well, to the right was the temple of a <clears throat> king who went by the name of Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut had been a big supporter of the beautiful festival back in her own day. Reliefs from her temples at Karnak and Deir al-Bahri show the celebrations and testify to her public honouring of the spirit of her ancestors and of the god Amun. Well, 
That was all well and good when she was alive, but within a few decades of her death, the Queen was being actively suppressed in the political record. How did that affect the Festival of the Valley? Surprisingly, it didn't actually do much. The Egyptians may have officially forgotten the Queen, but her temple remained in use. Priests made offerings there to gods like Amun, Hathor, and Anubis. Now, even with Hatshepsut gone, the temple was still quite useful. So the priests of Amun visited, in turn, the temple of Hatshepsut, of Tutmos III, and then of Montuhotep II. They made offerings, laid those bouquets of flowers, and celebrated the great kings with food and drink. The party, I think we can assume, went on for some time. The celebrations in Deir al-Bahari's mortuary temples were the culmination of the royal aspect of the Festival of the Valley. This was the official stuff, what the crown was concerned with. But the beautiful festival was also a time for commoners, both rich and poor, to give honour to the memory of their ancestors. We can't ignore them by any means, so before we wrap up month 10, let's take a look at what the average man and woman did on this most sacred occasion. For all ancient Egyptians, the beautiful festival of the valley was a time to remember the dead. As the great procession of Amun made its way west of Thebes, families of ordinary folk did the same. A stream of men, women, and children made their way across the western range out to the desert hills. Rich and poor, they journeyed westward, carrying with them the offerings bound for the tombs. Egyptians used the Grand Festival as a time to honour the memory of their deceased ancestors. In theory, this helped the souls live again, and gave the dead power in the earthly world. In practice, the worship was something like a grand picnic. Tomb paintings from Thebes tell us of this festival, and how non-royal Egyptians celebrated it. To begin with, there was food and drink galore, as much as the family could spare, which, depending on their wealth, could be quite a lot. Since the festival took place around the harvest, the deceased probably received a huge quantity of food and drink at this time. As far as binges go, this was probably a big one. People visited the burial sites of their dear departed family members. If they were wealthy, this might mean going to a tomb chapel, where statues of the deceased could be seen in the daylight. For the poor, this meant going to the desert cemeteries, where hundreds on hundreds of people lay in unmarked graves buried in the sands. A sharp contrast, and it probably meant that an elite offering was much more elaborate than a peasant one. But still, both were important, and both served an essential purpose. The people came to their cemeteries and tomb chapels with an attitude of pious respect, Mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, came out to the monuments of those who had come before. They came to honour their parents, their grandparents, their departed siblings, and their children. It was a time to give the dead new life. Each family member came up to the grave or chapel of the deceased, and they placed food and drink at the feet of the departed. Tomb paintings show this as placing offerings before statues, and this might have been true for most of the wealthy. For the poor, an offering at the gravesite of their family members was probably sufficient. It wasn't so important to be with the body itself, 
Rather, the important part was the ritual that went along with it. The living gave sustenance to the dead, and then they did something very important. They recited the deceased's name, speaking it aloud so that all could hear it. This is an act known as Redi Renef Anket, or causing his or her name to live. It was one of the most important parts of sustaining the deceased's soul, the idea that their name, if kept alive, helped preserve their spirit in the next world. This is a sentiment I've seen echoed today, with a quote that shows up on social media occasionally. <clears throat> they say a person dies twice, once when their body dies, and again when their name is spoken for the last time. It's the same sentiment, but rather than being melancholic about it, the Egyptians took an active approach to the situation. Every year, they performed a special ritual to honour the memory and to renew the name of the dead once again. When the name or names were recited, and the dead were given their offerings, the family had completed the ritual. They had caused the name of the dead to live once more. Now, they bowed before the statue or the grave and returned to their homes. The festival of the valley was over. It was time to return to the rhythm of life. So the beautiful feast of the valley was the only major celebration to occur in month number 10. From here, the next few weeks passed quietly. Egyptians carried on collecting the harvest and ensuring that everything was in place for the upcoming inundation. Soon, the end of the month approached and the 11th month began. Before we move on to the next month, I just want to make a quick note about an interesting parallel in world culture that continues to this day. As I mentioned earlier, there is a festival that is quite similar to this one in another culture. I'm talking, of course, about the Qingming Festival in China. In the Qingming, families in China visit the graves of their ancestors and make offerings of food, tea, wine, and ghost money, a kind of currency or docket which provides the spirit with essential goods. Families also sweep the graves clean and place flowers before them. The whole affair is steeped in tradition and has all sorts of rituals and taboos associated with it. But the essentials are remarkably similar to the Egyptians' beautiful festival of the valley. This, to my mind, is just one more example of how, at the end of the day, we are all one species dealing with death in similar ways. When the family had completed their offerings and caused the name of the dead to live once more, they bowed before the statue and returned to their homes. The feast of the valley was over, and it was time to go back to the rhythm of life. The beautiful feast of the valley was the only major celebration to occur in month number 10. From here, the next few weeks passed by quietly. Egyptians carried on collecting the harvest and ensured that everything was in place for the upcoming flood. Soon, the end of the month approached and the 11th month began. After the break, it's time to explore the month of Epep. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. 
The eleventh month was called Ipet Chemet or Ipep. This translates to Reckoning of His Majesty. Today, we might translate this as Royal Census. Essentially, it was a month when scribes and officials went throughout the land, tallying up the harvest and making sure that the tax was properly paid. Probably a frustrating time for many people, or at least those who didn't see the value of what the pharaoh was trying to do on their behalf. Either way, it was a month dominated by civil activity. As a result, the festivals were relatively few on the ground. So again, it seems like a time of year where Egyptians were hard at work in the secular realm, without so much time for worship of the gods. That being said, they did manage to make time for two very important deities. The major festival of month number eleven was a day of offerings to the god Hapi. Hapi was a god associated with the Nile. The water came from his home, and the inundation every year—that was his work. As you can imagine, Hapi was one of the oldest gods in the Egyptian pantheon. He was worshipped since at least the pre-dynastic era, around 3,500 BCE. In fact, Hapi was so old that his name was frequently used as a synonym for the river Nile itself. When it came to the great river, Hapi was all-important and all-powerful. Hapi lived somewhere south of Elephantine and Aswan. The Egyptians thought that the Nile flowed from his home in heaven and travelled through the underworld before emerging onto earth. To make sure that the river and the annual flood flowed properly, the Egyptians took special precautions. It seems as though Hapi never had his own temples. Instead, he appeared in the temples of other gods, performing the rituals and tasks with which he was associated. Additionally. Great statues of Hapi were erected in the major river communities. We'll meet one of these in a moment. Suffice to say that worship of Hapi was incredibly important, and as you'd expect, it was based primarily around the River Nile. The festival of Hapi reflects this concept beautifully. On day fifteen of month number eleven, the people of Egypt made their offerings to Hapi. They took offerings of food, drink, and yes, flowers, and they carried them down to the banks of the River Nile. Keeping an eye out for crocodiles or hippos, they took these offerings and tossed them directly into the water. Huge quantities of food, like bread or vegetables, must have gone into the river on this day, and we can imagine that the river banks quickly became clogged with the sheer quantity of offerings going into the water. Soon after that, the river would have been teeming with fish, preying on the crumbs left behind by all these offerings. With the river swelling with food and drink, the Egyptians prayed that Hapi would be satisfied by their offerings. They hoped that the great god would take these gifts and then bring the inundation or flood down and make their crops fertile. The Nile flood was still about six to eight weeks away on the general schedule. But the Egyptians were preparing for it in advance. The upcoming flood had to be not too low and not too high. Too low, and it wouldn't irrigate the farms. Too high, and it would wash away roads, walls, and even houses. So the flood was a delicate balance. The livelihoods of farmers and even the overall state were on the line. So Egyptians of all walks of life gave generously to ensure that Hapi was kind. The best image of Hapi which I have ever seen comes from the Greek and Roman period. 
It is a statue from the city of Thonus Heraklion, which sank into the Mediterranean Sea after an earthquake. The statue of Harpy that was located in the city sank as well, and a few years ago it was rediscovered and brought back to the surface. I saw this statue at the British Museum's Sunken Cities exhibition, and this thing is... wow. First of all, it's huge. Five and a half metres tall, or 17.8 feet. Secondly, it is pretty much intact, only a little bit of wear and tear. So you can see what an ancient colossus once looked like. I can't do this statue of Harpy justice, but if you want to see it, simply look to this episode's icon or to the podcast website. It is awesome. Worshipping Harpy was a vitally important task, which probably occurred throughout the Nile Valley. From the Nubian fortresses in the south, to Elephantine, Thebes, Abydos, Memphis, and the Delta, Egyptians everywhere came down to the river to make their offering to the great god of the water. With a little luck and a lot of piety, Harpy would bless them and bring a fruitful flood. With their offerings in the water, the Egyptians had done all that they reasonably could to ensure a good inundation. Now, there was nothing to do but wait. Now we play the waiting game. Oh, the waiting game sucks. Let's play Hungry Hungry Hippos! The offerings to Harpy occurred on day 15. For the next two weeks, life carried on quietly. The year was now winding down. Egyptians were busy with the harvest and were setting themselves up for the new year. Kind of like how so many businesses in Western nations take their annual holiday around December. Even though the actual festivals of Christmas are limited to a couple of days, many people use the period for a time of general recuperation. The Egyptians probably did the same, at least on the religious front. So, we move forward two weeks, down to the end of month 11. The last day of Ipet Hemet was a festival dedicated to the goddess Hathor. This was a local festival, celebrated mostly in Thebes, but it commemorated a great goddess who was prominent and important in the lives of all Egyptians. Hathor was a mother to everyone, and in the days of the New Kingdom, she had not yet been supplanted by the cult of Isis. So, in the time of the 18th dynasty, where our narrative currently sits, Hathor got yet another day all to herself. Just in time for the New Year too, which, for a goddess who loved to drink, was probably a great time. This is where month number 11 came to its end. With it, the Egyptians entered the last phase of the year. Soon, it would be time to celebrate new beginnings. Soon, life would begin again. But that'll have to wait for the next episode. For now, let's draw these flower festivities to their close. The beautiful festival of the valley is, for my money, the most wonderful of the ancient Egyptian festivals. It's the festival that sort of explains most clearly why the ancient Egyptians went to so much effort with their tombs, their mummies, their cults, and their monuments. We like to speak of the Egyptians as being obsessed with death, but that could not be further from the truth. The Egyptians were obsessed with life. It was life that the gods gave to souls, it was to renew life that the Egyptians gave offerings. It was for eternal life that they recounted the names of their ancestors, and built the ungodly huge monuments that protected their bodies. 
always, the Egyptians were looking to celebrate life, to renew life, to make life, and to the afterlife. The beautiful festival of the valley, I think, shows that truth most clearly. Every family that made the trip out to the cemeteries, every person that twisted flowers into an elaborate bouquet shaped like an ankh, every child who recited the names of people they might have never met, they were all constantly serving the ideal of life. This is the essential truth of Egyptian funerary culture. The beautiful festival of the valley is the pinnacle of that concept. Before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout-out to the Mexican Day of the Dead, which has its roots in the indigenous practices of the Mexica. Similar to the beautiful festival of the valley, or to Qingming, this Day of the Dead involves offerings of food and flowers to the deceased. It involves cleaning of graves and tombs, and recounting the memories of the departed. Now this festival has persisted since the days of the conquest, and inevitably it has found its way into Europe via the Atlantic trade. Today, All Saints Day and All Souls Day continue those practices far from where they began. These are practices that have been part of the human tradition since the very earliest civilizations. Personally, I hope that humans continue to do this for many millennia to come. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.